We return in the second hour to Hebrews chapter 6. Our focus this morning is verses 4 to 6. Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. For it isn't possible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they should fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Father, we recognize even upon the first reading of this text again this morning that it's very serious. And our approach to it would likewise be serious. We recognize that at stake in the life of some is the honor and the glory of Christ. We associate ourselves with the truth of Christ. And if we were to so live in a way dishonoring to you, we can certainly imagine a shame that will be associated with the gospel, associated with this church family, associated with our own earthly families because of sin and disregard for thy word. And so there is a seriousness as we approach the text. And yet, there are so many wonderful things that we know about the text and about the section of which we can be certain that we would pray that as we enter into it today and next week at the table of the Lord, that there would be left no uncertainty in us concerning the plain meaning of the text, nor its application to us as individuals. We thank you for the occasion. We ask your blessing upon us. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. My grandmother's favorite crooner was named Perry Como. Perry Como had a number of hit songs in the 40s and the 50s, and one of his hit songs was entitled, It's Impossible. The lyrics go, tell the sun to leave the sky. It's just impossible. Ask a baby not to cry. It's just impossible. Of course, Como's singing point had to do with living without the love of a particular woman. Nonetheless, there really are things in this created world that to us are impossible. Now the counterpoint for the Christian is that nothing is impossible for God. And yet, there are things made by God to be impossible for us both in the material world and in the immaterial world. 
Now, I'm sure that you have given mind many, many, many times to the world of impossibility in the material world. I think of one summer day long ago when my dad bought a new boat and motor. This was a particular upgrade for the family and a boat and motor that had a steering wheel. Most of our boats did not have steering wheels. We uh, ran the boats from the back uh, with our hand on the, on the engine, as it were. Uh, but this boat was an upgrade, had a steering wheel. And we took it down to the Vets Park, and, uh, and he said, I want to launch it and take a spin around the river uh, before I come in and, and, and pick you up, and then we'll, we'll go down the river. I said, that'd be great. And so I helped him launch the boat, and I was probably about 14 years of age when all this hoopla took place. And, uh, and uh, we launched the boat, and he uh, drove the boat out around uh, uh, the river two, three times, and all times he's waving at me and smiling when he's standing there at the wheel of the boat. And all of a sudden, he turns the boat towards the dock and towards the ramp at Vets Park, and I see him take the throttle and pull it back, and nothing happens. The boat stays right up to full speed, just wow, 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 and he's pulling and going back and forth with the throttle, and it's wow, wow. And pretty soon I heard these words Stop me, Tim, stop me. <laughs> really, Dad? I might have been in the prime of my youth, but there was no stop in that boat as he brought her into the dock. Full speed, ran her right up on the ramp, the engine popped out of the air, we spread water. Everybody in town knew we were foolish. It was hoopla! There are things in the material world impossible. There are things in the immaterial world impossible. Let me say it another way. There are spiritual things impossible, made by God to be impossible. In our text, we begin our consideration of something to be identified that is impossible. Having given the overview of this chapter in the terms of the imperative, chapter 6, 1 to 3, the impossibility, 6 to 4, the illustration, divided up into two sections following, and then the instruction that rounds out the chapter. And having worked through the imperative, verses 1 to 3, which speak to the advance of a person's soul spiritually onto a place of maturity, we are now, as of this morning, tackling the case of the impossibility as presented here in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6 saying that this particular text is controversial is a phenomenal understatement. Theologians of the Arminian variety use the text to teach that a saved person can lose or forfeit their salvation. The Catholic Church uses the text to teach the extra-biblical idea of purgatory. Good and godly men like Kenneth Weiss, Gleason Archer, John Owen, and radio Bible teacher John MacArthur hold that these verses reference Jewish people who were not Christians 
at all. Other good and godly men like Charles Ryrie, J. Vernon McGee, M.R.D. Hahn, and Warren Worsby hold that these verses address sinful Christians. Now, it's ill-advised for me to think that I can present the definitive word on this text, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, I do believe that we can point our souls to absolute certainty. My approach to the text is a learned approach. My approach to this difficult text was learned at the hands of one of the most godly laymen I've ever known. Just a week or two ago, I heard that this particular old godly layman, from years and years and years ago, I heard that his son Bill, uh, a week or two ago, entered into the presence of the Lord. But Clarence, the dad, was very old when I was a young pastor, and he was to me a godly advisor. In a time of pastoral trouble of soul over congregational matters in that first ministry, on the other side of the state of Michigan, Clarence said to me, Pastor, whenever I do not know what to do next, I spend my time thinking about what I know for sure. My approach to this difficult text has been what do we know for sure? That will help us between this morning and next week at the communion hour to be certain concerning this section of the Word of God. I offer you seven certainties, so I guess we better get after it in this half hour left. Number one. A divine condition does exist from time to time when human repentance is impossible. It is certain that the impossibility here has to do with repentance. When the people of God sinned back in the day, putting stock in the majority report of the ten spies at Kadesh Barnea, God punished that whole generation in a way for which their repentance afterwards would have had no change of practical effect. You can read the record of God's judgment in Numbers 14. More recently and familiar to us in this local church was the instruction that God gave to Jeremiah at a given point in time in his prophetic ministry, in which Jeremiah was told, do not pray any longer for this people's well-being in the land of promise. A time came when the prophet could certainly pray for the people's well-being uh, uh, before the Lord, but he could not pray any longer for their well-being within the land of promise because God had already decided it was boot time. And so, in Jeremiah's day, there was no point in praying prayers of repentance that would lead to staying in the land of promise any longer because that option had been removed from the table by the Almighty. You can read of that in Lamentations chapter 2. 
even the book of Proverbs speaks about too little, too late for those that defy God's wisdom. Wisdom personified says, quote, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find. Proverbs 1 and verse 28. And then, of course, you have in the New Testament case of Ananias and Sapphira, God's judgment coming so quickly upon their sin before the church that there was absolutely no time left them for repentance. And so I'm simply saying that if you look at the biblical incidences, you can say definitively that there are times when God removes from a person or from people any remaining opportunity uh, to repent as to a particular result or in kind. It is certain that both the saved and the unsaved will face loss of opportunity from God at times. God is a God of order. He has appointed seasons and times. When you and I go to uh, the grocery store in February and we see those beautiful red ripe tomatoes for sale, we know they were not grown in anybody's Michigan garden. They may have been grown in a greenhouse, but more than likely they were grown in South America because every farmer knows that God has established in creation times and seasons. And likewise, every individual and every church family and every nation ought to understand that God has appointed times and seasons for everything. And there are things in your life and mine, and there are things in the life of a nation, and there are things in the life of the church that we better be active in the season that God gives us. Because seasonal opportunity can indeed be removed. Now, let me tell you the one thing I'm not talking about. Let me tell you about the one thing I'm not talking about. Let me tell you about the one thing I'm not talking about. Did I say that enough? I'm talking about personal salvation. The Bible says, behold, now is the day of salvation. So don't let anybody here screw with their own mind and come to me and say, well, I guess I can't be saved. Then. That's just nonsense on your part. You can know the Lord today. You can know the joy of sins forgiven today. You can be a child of God today. And you can know that every day as you draw breath in this world. Once you die, that's it for you. No opportunities after death. But as the old preacher said it, as long as there's breath, there's life. So let's not be confused as to what it is we're not preaching about today. Okay? Second thing. It is certain that people cannot undo or redo anything God has done. God gave progressively over time the revelation of Christ through promise, type, and prophecy. God, in the fullness of time, sent his Son to redeem. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. What God has done in Christ cannot be undone. What God has done in Christ cannot be redone. We know that for sure. Jesus said, it is finished. And he certainly knew what he was talking about. Number three, it is certain that the New Testament period in which the book of Hebrews was written, that believing Jews in Jesus often suffered greatly for their faith in Christ and found it very hard to endure. Even Peter was tempted to believe one thing and live another when living before the eyes of his Jewish brethren until he was confronted by the Apostle Paul. But Jewish believers at times had it so rough that they were tempted to abandon Christ, to abandon their faith, and to go back to Judaism. And of course, if any of them did abandon their faith and go back to Judaism, that would be called apostasy. And such a departure, such an apostasy, uh, cannot expose a saved heart gone bad, but an unsaved heart. Apostasy always exposes an unsaved heart. And so if any Jew did abandon Christ and go back to Judaism, well then indeed that would be apostasy. And number four, it is certain that the words of this text, verse 6, particularly fall away. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, it is certain that the words fall away here are not referring to apostasy. How do we know that? Well, the word here means to fall, to stumble, to stand apart. The English words fall away, as are recorded in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, come from the Greek word rendering the English word apostasy. That is not the word here. The word here, fall away, is the same root as when Jesus fell before the Father in prayer at Gethsemane. Remember, the concern here in the broader context is for spiritual growth and maturity. The problem that is being addressed, chapter 5, verse 11, is dullness. The problem as it being addressed, chapter 6 and verse 12, is slothfulness. Dullness and slothfulness are the contextual subject matter at hand in this passage. Number five, any form of disregard for the cross of Christ by act or attitude is a phenomenally serious matter. Personal association by act or attitude with the crucifixion and mockery of Jesus Christ is horrendous. Our sins are what made the crucifixion of Christ necessary for our salvation. 
continuing to live in sin rather than dealing with it in the way provided is to identify oneself at the mockery level with the Lord at the point of crucifixion. Another blast from my family past. When I was a young boy, uh, getting to be a, a teenager, and looking forward to having the keys to the family car, I, I heard a little speech, first from my dad and then from my mother, and the little speech went something like this. Remember, Timothy, that when you're out there, and they had no clue as to where, uh, but when you're out there, uh, remember that everywhere you go and everything you do is a reflection upon uh, this family. Your last name is Teal. Take care of that name. At the moment in human history, it stands in pretty good stead. Let's keep it that way. Let's not uh, bring the name to the front page of the newspaper in some kind of an ungodly mess. And so uh, remember when you're out there that you represent this family. But more than that, remember that you represent a church family. And in those days, it was a South Baptist church in Bay City, Michigan, that my young teenage life was representing. And, uh, and my family reminded me that, that I had an obligation and a, and a, and a sense of responsibility uh, to protect the good name of the South Baptist Church because we all knew that there were people, some of them members for many years, uh, that took the name of that church right through the Bay City mud. And, uh, and believers can't sin and they can't uh, uh, be dishonoring to God and not have it reflect poorly upon their church family, let alone their own family. And then thirdly, particularly my mother, who said, and remember above all, that you're a child of God. And that everything you do, everywhere you go, that you reflect God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, here we're being introduced to a group of people whose actions and attitudes connect them at the mockery level with the Lord at the point of crucifixion. In other words, the writer is saying that there is a way to think and live so as to join the jeering crowd that is crying, crucify him, when indeed there was no reason whatsoever for that punishment on and among men. The apostle is indicating that there is on uh, the mockery level a connection between the Lord's crucifixion and the actions and the attitudes of certain people. So we can say for sure that any form of disregard for the cross of Christ by act or by attitude is a most serious matter. Number six, it is certain that unsaved professors and carnal believers occupy the membership roles 
of every local church. We do what we can to ensure a saved membership. It is one of the Baptist distinctives that we are to ensure. But it would not surprise us to have some unsaved members as a part of the membership rules of a Baptist church. And neither would it be a surprise to us to have some members uh, that are indeed uh, saved, but living after and loving the world rather than living after and loving rightly the Lord. Uh, the idea that there would be associated with a church family unsaved members and carnal members is no surprise. What might be a surprise to your ears as a layperson is the outstanding and uh, agreed upon uh, perspective of most pastors as to the percentage of unsaved members in a church like ours. And most people have the idea, well, there might be 1% or 2%. Uh, most seasoned pastors uh, run, in their best guess, right about 50%. That 50% of the average Baptist church are unsaved members. I know what you think about that. I think that's too high for any sense of comfortability, and yet I could not prove that stat to be false. Not surprising that there be some unsaved members. Not surprising that there be some saved members living after the world. And because of that, it is no cop-out to see that in the end, the logic of this text as forwarded here can apply to unbelievers who have been exposed to the truth of Christ and yet remain unsaved. And it can apply to believers living contrary to the calling of Christ. We sing the little song, Who is on the Lord's side? And we know that sometimes it's difficult to tell the saved from the unsaved, particularly in this generation. And then number seven, it is certain that a born-again person cannot lose his or her salvation. We do not hang on to God. He hangs on to us. Do I believe you can lose your grip? Yep! Do I believe God can lose his grip? Nope! You're not saved so that you can hang on to God. If you're saved, God is hanging on to you. So please do not turn this passage into something that it is not. Keep your mind and keep your heart in the realm of certainty. That old deacon back in Cass City, bless his pee-picking heart, Clarence, he was right. When your mind gets fogged, when you're exposed to something that you're not sure about, whether it be some passage of the scripture or whether it be some issue in life, 
Don't spend your time foolishly thinking about what you don't know. Spend your time productively thinking about what you do know. And when you do that with this passage of Scripture, you come away with a number of certainties, including the certainty that a born-again person cannot lose uh, or, uh, or uh, set aside uh, their salvation. Jesus said that no one can pluck God's sheep out of his hands. Yet believers are duly warned, and not once, and not twice, but again and again and again, concerning the loss of reward. When earthly life in Christ is not lived out in the fear of God and trembling dependency upon him day by day, with these seven certainties in mind, we will specify the meaning of this impossibility next week at the table of the Lord. But I want to read the text, remind you of one more thing, and then we'll pray. Here's the text. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to open shame. Now notice something with me in that list of description concerning the impossible thing. In the case of impossibility, the individuals were enlightened. Think about tense. Present tense, past tense, future tense. What would this be? Past. They were enlightened. What's next? Have tasted. Tasted. Present tense, past tense, future tense, which is this, past tense. Pa tasted of the heavenly gift, were made. Present tense, past tense, future tense, it's past tense. Partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted present tense, future tense, past tense. Of course, you got it already. The good word of God and the powers of the world to come. In each case, the description here is describing a certainty. A certainty of something that has happened. And what is described here as a certainty that has happened is called, in one case, enlightenment, in another case, a heavenly gift. In another case, particulars of the Holy Ghost. In another case, the Word of God. And in the last case, a tasting of the world to come. That's important when we return next week to the idea of impossibility. What is it specifically that the writer to the Hebrews is raising concerning the idea of something that is indeed 
in the plan of God, in the mind of God, an impossibility. And again, it's so gracious that just so that we see the thing in the context that this is not the only impossibility in the chapter. Because as we pointed out uh, last week from verse 18, it is also impossible uh, that uh, by two immutable things uh, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We all understand that impossibility. God cannot lie. God cannot deny. God cannot die. God cannot deny himself. It's no possibility of God lying. And we'll come to the end of the chapter and deal with that impossibility. But this first impossibility really stirs the mind and really uh, causes the soul at times to be in consternation as well it should. Because it speaks of something that is very, very serious concerning the relationship of an individual to the salvation of God. It speaks about the relationship of an individual to the gospel. It speaks about the relationship of an individual to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only the Lord Jesus Christ today, but going all the way back to the death in which he died at the cross for the sins of the world. And so it's important that we give due consideration to this impossibility. But as we lead up to the truth, it is also important that we rally our hearts and minds around what the text says concerning certainty. Certainty. We will deal with any remaining confusion. We will deal with any remaining lack of grace with the certainty that we have in Jesus Christ. When it comes to Christ, you and I know at the soul level, we may for sure be certain of him. Am I certain of you? Most of the time. Are you certain of me? Well, I would hope you'd in kind say, <laughs> most of the time. Am I perfectly certain of you? Are you kidding? Do I think you're perfectly certain of me? No. But there is one of whom I and you may be certain. And that one is Jesus Christ. Let's talk about Jesus. Father, thank you for this hour preparing us for communion even next week and a little more from this important text of Scripture. Help us this week to make Christ the center of our certainty, the center of our thinking, and the center of our communication. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.